You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. From James, first chapter, verses 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Wonderful to hear the word of God read out loud. Uh, We're starting a series through the book of James today, but before we do that, actually, I wanted to pray. Um, But I wanted to pray intentionally for those of you who might not be aware uh, today is a day across many churches, particularly in America, but throughout um, the Christian world where we're praying uh, for the persecuted church. We call it the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Um, the reality is in America, we're pretty privileged. And that sometimes that word gets used in different ways, but I think that can be a good thing. We have the freedom to worship like this. No one is outside checking your ID. No one's writing you down for being in a religious public gathering. Um, But the reality also around our world, there are many who, for the name of Christ, to gather together like this, uh, it's a real step of faith. It's a courageous step. For many, it's being ostracized from their family. For many, it's the threat of losing their vocation. For many, and we, this is, you just have to watch the news, for many, it's losing their life. For a terrorist, sometimes the easiest way to make a statement is, no, there's going to be a bunch of Christians gathered on a Sunday morning, so let's bomb the building while they're there. It's the reality. So I want us to pray. I also want us to learn, though. Um, I'm convicted as I was praying for that this morning. Man, sometimes we're so spoiled in America, and this is not the bash on us. I mean, I, I, don't, want, I don't want shame and guilt, right? but I think just a sober assessment. Sometimes we're so spoiled in our country where we will um, find any reason to like, not be part of the church. Uh, I don't like the way they do that. Oh, that's not convenient for me. Oh, I wish they would do it this way. And Oh, that church, man, we just kind of hop around or we stop going or we don't really get committed. And again, that's not, not, not to drive you. It's just to be honest and say, you know what? Sometimes we've got to recognize the cost of following Christ. There's a cost. There's sacrifice. And for some brothers and sisters around the world, it's a real physical manifest of sacrifice. But I think we can learn from them as well. Are we willing to count some of the cost of being part of Christ's church publicly and declare that we are not ashamed of him? We will gather and we will love. So I think to honor 
these men and women around. Can I ask you to stand with me as we pray for them? And again, depending on your knowledge of these things, you can let that guide you in prayer. But can I give you a quiet moment right now to pray? And if you don't know anything else about these issues, go read up on it after. But right now, just pray, Lord, comfort the brokenhearted. Give courage to the weak. Lord, I pray for them like I, pray for, like I would pray for my physical brother and sister because spiritually they are my brother and sister, even if I've never met them. Pray for them because they're family. So take a quiet moment, do that, and then I'll pray for us as we go forward. Heavenly Father, we, um, we join our hearts in solidarity for those um, who taking up the cross every day is a very literal idea particularly in these things we call the gather church to put a bullseye on their back saying I am publicly gathering with these people called the followers of Christ Lord can often bring detriment and harm so Lord we pray for courage Lord there are no more super people than we are they face the same fears and courage for themselves for their families for their livelihood so we pray for the same courage we would pray for ourselves in difficult times and ask that you would equip them and strengthen them and Lord may they know the power of this gospel that they they might lose everything in this world Lord you have given a far greater crown of glory and that would encourage them to keep fighting to keep helping others to know who you are. And Lord, that you would be that much more glorious in spite of, and in fact, when we see the sufferings that we go through, we would remember your sufferings, Lord. It would draw us even closer to your bosom. We thank you, Lord, that you are sufficient for their needs. We don't pity them, Lord. If anything, we kind of envy them because, Lord, their faith somehow gets even more real because we're reminded of the way of the cross that you are known in deep, significant ways in the path of suffering. And Lord, we repent sometimes of our self-centeredness when it comes to you and the local church. Help us to humble ourselves, Lord, and recognize, God, you've called us to a, a radical proposition of what it means to follow you. So help us, Lord, to not stay in that place of just feeling bad. But Lord, may we learn from our brethren and may it lead us to even greater cost in following you because we know We're not really giving up much because we're getting something far greater. So, Lord, all around this world right now, strengthen your church. And in Christ's name we pray together. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, Before I go into uh, starting the sermon, I'm I'm really excited about this book, James. But I did want to take a quick moment. Um, And for some of you who are unaware, my father passed away recently. It's been a long journey uh, just with his cancer that hit kind of suddenly last year. But then... Um, the past year being a good walking together, and it's just really escalated in the past uh, couple of months, and particularly in the past month, uh, caught us off guard a little bit. He had gone home for hospice care. We thought we'd have more time, um, but he was, he was unresponsive a few weeks ago, so I went to visit, and then, but man, the old guy's a beast. He wouldn't give up. He was pretty much in his bed, not being able to do anything, eat or drink for like a week, and, and like I'm there the whole time thinking, okay, maybe it's today. Oh, okay. Oh, there goes his eyes. Wow, he's opening his eyes. Oh, he's talking. What's going on? But he was pretty weak, and the cancer ate away at his body. Um, but I really wanted to thank all of you, um, especially, um, I, mean, I know you've been praying and thinking about me and our family, and it really means a lot. 
Um, truly felt the encouragement um, from many of you in active ways, and I'm sure in many ways that were unstated. Uh, thank you for that. And, um, you know, as I think about it, I, I, uh, just for you to be aware, I mean, I was, it's been really weird because I've been grieving in different ways like I didn't think I would. Because in my mind, I always attach grieving with, man, you got a lot of regret. <laughs> oh, no, and you should feel bad about that. He went about as well as, as I could imagine someone would, aside from the cancer, which was physically ravaging his body. But he loved Jesus. He followed Jesus his whole life. We had time to prepare. So we were there, his wife, my mom, my brother and I, we were there at the very end. It was peaceful. It was good. Um, but it's, it's, it, it reminds me, as good as it is, and our theology guides, guides us, it guides me, I'm able to rejoice because I truly believe, and this is where heaven and eternity starts to really press in deep. You're like, this is why we have hope in the gospel, not just for this short little existence we have here, but there is a truly greater glory. I love the way someone encouraged me by sharing, man, now he gets to experience his great eternal reward. I love that language that now he gets to be with his heavenly father and rejoice and rest when this life was often so hard. But even as I know all that, I was shocked at how deeply the grieving occurs still on this end, on this side of glory. And it reminds me, and I think it reminds me of the fact that we're not created to lose relationship. That's why it hurts so much when we lose relationship, whether it's through a broken, maybe romantic relationship, whether it's even someone moving away. Why does that hurt so much? Why do we not know how to process that? Because we're not created in our original being to understand losing someone. That's why it hurts so much. And ultimately, obviously, in death, we were not created to be able to understand these things. So it's hard. It's hard but again, our theology guides us, so we grieve as the scriptures call us to, but not grieve as, if, as those without hope, but with hope. So that's some of the lessons I've been learning. So if I just lose it all of a sudden and start, I've been having these like out of the blue kind of grieving moments. So uh, I might look at some of you and you might look like him. So I might just like lose it at the moment. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, really appreciate your prayer. I could feel God's strength through those things. And again, I'm excited to get into this new book of James. Um, and we start in verse 1 as we're introduced to James. And it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So James is introducing himself in this letter here, and we, we, we want to know who he is. And we're generally agreed here. Scholars believe that he's uh, that James who was one of the brothers of Jesus. So this is Jesus' brother here. And if any of you got beefs with people in your family, take heart that Jesus had... Well, he wasn't the one with a beef. It was his brothers, right? Because he's God-fully, God-fully man. But in John 5, we read about the fact that um, his brother came to be a believer even though he didn't believe in Jesus originally. In John 7, it shows that he actually didn't believe. His family was like hating on him, right? But in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it talks about those who witnessed the resurrection with their own eyes. And James, by name, was included there in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And he became a believer. And he became one of the fiercest followers of Christ who happened to be his own physical brother. And he was nicknamed, this guy James was a beast, right? He was nicknamed James the Just because he was a man who lived out what he taught. He was a man of fierce conviction. He had another nickname, Camel Knees. (laughs) Camel knees. You're thinking, is that holy or what? It was because that man prayed so much that his knees became like camels. 
Like he, 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 he was on his knees praying for such a long, fervent time that this became part of how he was known. He was a respected leader of the early church. And this letter was most likely written between 44 AD, which was the beginning of the persecution that spread, as we see in the book of Acts in the early church, and the year 62, which was the year of his martyrdom. He, he died for his faith. So this was probably written around um, the year 49 A.D., making it uh, most likely one of the earliest New Testament writings. So we see here in verse 1, we're explain, uh, it's explaining who James was writing to, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's a key word here, the dispersion. He's writing to these early Christians who were scattered all over the known world at that time because great persecution hit the church in Jerusalem. So you would think that would have killed the movement. It actually was God using that persecution to spread this movement to the world. So these followers of Jesus, high-impact leaders, they were sent to all these different places. They were dispersed, and he's writing to them. Because they're immigrants. And I know the whole topic of immigration is big in our culture right now. These were immigrants. And if you know any, if maybe some of you are immigrants and you know, being an immigrant is hard. Wherever you go, you're not familiar. You don't know. You don't understand. People look at you funny. That was the first followers of Christ as they were spread. Those who left Jerusalem, they went to these different places. They were immigrants. And immigrants tend to struggle. It's hard. So James was writing to those who were dispersed, who were facing real-life problems. And accordingly, they had hit this wall in their relation with Jesus. And I know you're all, none of you hit walls because you're all like super, super Christians here, right? But if any of you have ever hit a wall in your faith, you're going to love this. Because that's who he's writing to. People who are struggling in their faith. So let's continue in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it says trials, and what trials means here, it describes those things that puts a person to the test in regards to their faith. And maybe it's difficulties from the outside, or maybe it's things from within, like temptation, moral tests. Um, in this case here, James is probably having in mind trials that are related to the persecution that these scattered believers are experiencing. He's probably addressing the fact that your life is hard right now because you follow Christ and you've been scattered and, and you're experiencing trials related to that. And I want to I be clear because I think we got to differentiate sometimes hard things in life. Um, because sometimes hard things are the result of you know, and it's real. I mean, we're, we're suffering, but sometimes the hard things we go through, it's our own fault. Um, like, I, I, I know I look young and hip and cool, but I'm, I'm old now. But I think I still try to act like I'm young, especially when it comes to food. So, like, I remember when I was in college, like, yo, I could down, like, a whole thing of wings and pizza, like, right before bed. Now I was cool, so I can still do that now. Um, and my wife, she's wife, she's like, yeah, I don't think that's going to turn out well. I'm, no, no, I'm good. It'll be different than every other time. Um, <laughs> So I'll just have like a dozen hot, like megaton kind of hot wings right before bed. And then middle of the night, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And my wife is a gem because she doesn't really feel that bad for me. She's like, what did I tell you? So if I'm suffering, I'm really suffering. And maybe I'll even call it a trial. But I got to come back at me and say, okay, you had something to do with that. Actually, the majority. Because I, I, I'm saying that because I want to be clear that what James is not referring to here. Because he's not talking about stuff that just kind of like, it's your fault. 
and saying, oh, look at a trial I'm experiencing for Jesus. Nah, Holmes, that's you. Rather, James is speaking of trials that occur precisely because of our faithfulness. He's actually talking about when you are following Jesus obediently and faithfully and doing what you're supposed to do. And then you experience these hard things because of that. Um, The reason why I'm trying to make that really clear for us here, there is some, I would say, really aberrant strands of theology out there um, that that will say certain things like, God never wants you to go through hard things. Or if you're going through some kind of like illness, that's not really like God's will. And, you know, and and I want to be clear, illness, pain, none of that was part of God's original creation. That's true. That is true. But you will have some people that will look at you and maybe you're going through something. And and really, you you legitimately can say, I've been faithful to God. But they'll look and say, oh, you, you just need more faith, brother. You just need more faith. This is a result of your lack of faith. Your mom's illness? Oh, it's because you haven't prayed enough. You just need more faith, and then you'll be healed. And they'll twist scripture in different ways. So be very careful about any person who invokes the name of Christ to say that the hard things you're going through are not of God and that you just need more faith. Because the reality and the truth, as James writes here, um, again, God's not the author of hard things necessarily, but we should expect hardships. That's what James is saying here. Don't, don't be like caught off guard by these things. Actually, you should be aware that life is hard. Um, trials are a normal part of life. Um, if you're not experiencing them, maybe you're not even following God because the enemy's looking and say, okay, I don't got to do anything. And they're like, they're good. <laughs> they're totally not following you. We should not be surprised when things happen because we live in a broken world. There are some things that will happen as you follow Christ that are part of being born into a world that is disobediently broken from God. And he's in repair now through Christ. The new kingdom has come, but we're still living out some of the brokenness. If you ever, um, and maybe some of you think that Christianity is looking at the world and saying, okay, I should always be holly jolly and smile and, you know, just feel good about everything's good. And if you wonder, if you ever feel guilty because you look at the world and you're like depressed sometimes, you should be depressed. (laughs) You should be. The world is broken. It should bring sorrow to your heart. And again, it's not an eternal sorrow because we know God is fixing everything and he started that and through the work of Christ. And Christ will complete it. But we should not be surprised at hardships and trials even as we follow Jesus faithfully. And here's the wonder of how God works and if, you've, if you're here for the first time today, you need to listen to other sermons so you get, you're able to see the figure out. Here's the wonder how God works. And it can only really understand, make sense if we know how good God is. Because beyond just enduring hardships, beyond just you kind of, okay, well, just get through this season. And, you know, I know it's hard. Beyond just enduring it, trials are actually something that's helpful. It's not just something to get through. And James is saying these things that are so hard, they're actually helpful for your soul and it's purposeful by God because he wants to grow you in deeper maturity and faith. He wants you to actually grow more to be like Jesus. So facing trials, facing these tests, um, it leads to this thing that we see here described in verse three called steadfastness. Steadfastness. 
And other translations, they use the word perseverance. I love both of those words. This idea of continuing to move forward. Even what, no matter what comes, still going to move. Still, I might be limping. I might be crawling. But there's going to be a steadfast moving continually in one direction. I might even have to pause for a little bit and take a little bit of a water break. But I'm going in one direction in spite of what's happening in my life. And here's why I think this is significant, particularly for our church, because we're a fairly young church here. So not just age. I mean, age-wise, y'all make me feel old. But I think spiritually, we're also a young church. Because I think sometimes this point, this is the exact point where many of us get stuck in our journeys. That moment where God's trying to call us to steadfastness, to persevere. I think for some of us here, that's the point where we actually go a little bit off the rails. Um. Because most of us, when we're here, say on a Sunday or some other spiritually high event, we're at a prayer conference, usually you don't feel like you're losing your faith at those times, right? When you're on the mountaintop and everything is good, you feel like, whoa, I could conquer this world. I could totally do this. Totally. I can move mountains. I can do anything. I can live for God is awesome. God is amazing. So it's usually not where I, where, when we're at the height of the mountaintops when we lose our faith but it's when we go back into real life, into the valleys. When we get away from some of the spiritual euphoria of some of these things like worship. Again, I love worship. But sometimes that steadfastness where we fall off is not when we're here, but when we go back into the real world. When we go back into the real challenges that sometimes life uh, gives us. But here's the hope we have. Here's our hope that that place of trial, as much as you might abhor it, as much as you might despise that place of trial, the scriptures, and James here reminds us that the place of trial is where God promises some of our greatest growth and maturity will occur. Our place of trial is often, as much as we hate it, that's often going to be the place where God says, this is where you're going to grow the most. This is where you're going to grow in deep ways that you would have never imagined or fathomed before. And the way God uses our trials, it's kind of like uh, muscle training. And I mean, I don't know how many of you lift weights and stuff. You can tell it's been a while for me. But I remember fondly in back memories, right? But like part of the, if you're not familiar with like strength training, lifting weights, um, it's not just in that process of trying to learn to lift more heavy weights. It's you actually end up tearing your muscle fibers. That's how you grow stronger. And, and some of you don't do it. Like, why would anyone do CrossFit? That's ridiculous. That's why I like to sit in my chair and just exercise watching Netflix. That's better. Um, that's how you actually grow bigger muscles. Those people with these ginormous muscles, they've just, through working out, have torn muscle fibers over and it repairs and gets stronger. That's how it happens. And that's why steroids are such a big deal in sports like uh, baseball and football is people are trying to speed up that process of repairing the torn muscles. Um, it, it's again, that, that illusion kind of loses its uh, full effect here, but it's kind of a similar thing. That God uses those times of breaking and tearing and harshness even that in our eyes to use those things to dr- uh, grow us even stronger in perseverance, in steadfastness, in strength, in trusting him. That God uses our times of trial. Often, a lot of our trials, a lot of our tests, if we, if we look at the deep root of it, our trials are often we're not getting what we think we want. A lot of times our trials are where we have this idea, this is what would be a good life, and we're not getting it. Oh, trial. And what God is often doing at those times is he's revealing that what you really want is maybe really not what honors God fully. And you're actually kind of worshiping those things 
And sometimes he allows us to see the experience of chasing after things that we think will fulfill us and complete us and realizing it just leads to pain. And ultimately, that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. So our trials point us back to Christ. Our trials often uh, just put into the situation. Most of you here, you're fairly well-equipped. You can handle life. But have you ever had, had those situations? Again, it's not, maybe not even your fault. That you're just like crumbled. It's like I felt that in the past month. Where just, you're down, face down on the ground and you feel like, I don't know what to do here. God, uh, 30 years of school didn't prepare me for this. I can't handle this. My emotions are not created to be able to understand this kind of difficulty and challenge and loss. I'm, I, I'm at my wit's end, God. I can't do anything And in those moments, sometimes of our trials, it brings us to our face and it brings us to the place where it looks painful, but it's actually God's sowing ground for him to remind us, I got you. I love you. I will not let you go. I know you've trusted in those other things. Be reminded, trust in me again. Trust in me again. I'm good. So you see the order here, right? First trials, then response and steadfastness, perseverance, and it leads us to maturity. It leads us to spiritual maturity. And, and if I can, in love, ask some of you to do some inventory of your soul, maybe for some of us, the reason that we're frustrated that we're not growing into mature believers is we've never really gone through this period of perseverance, steadfast, that steadfastness through our trials. Like we, we love being here and we love the spiritual high. And when the word is being preached or you're singing or you're in community group and you're praying with your friends, you're like, yeah, I can do this. But then you hit trial and you're like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And maybe those are the opportunities God is calling you to trust in him and say, this is not just a speed bump. This is actually part of the journey and turn to me more. I'm going to use this in your life. Because trials... Uh, trials are the soil in which the seeds of steadfast faith grow. That's something I've been meditating on, this idea. Trials are the soil in which the seeds of steadfast faith grow. And James says in verse 2 here, count it all joy. For the follower of Christ, for the Christian, um, James is saying you can even have joy in your times of trial. How can he say that? Because he's not saying you can be happy. We, we got to get that clear here. James is not saying, oh yeah, you know, be happy when you're facing trials because we're all just mental midgets when it comes to Christianity, right? We don't believe the word or world around us. We don't see it. No, we, we know clearly pain. We know clearly suffering. We're not oblivious. Our eyes are wide open. So we're not being happy. We're not ridiculous in here saying, oh yeah, when you experience loss and pain and frustration and things leaving and breaking, oh yeah, just be happy because don't worry, be happy, right? That's from the Bible. Here clearly, James is not saying happiness because happiness comes and goes based on our circumstances. Happiness is more how we respond based on how good things are going. So we'll ha- feel happy when things are going well. When things are not going well, we're not going to be happy. But joy, Christian, deeply rooted, biblical gospel, deeply rooted joy, it can be found in the hardest of times. It can be found in the most unhappy situations. It can be found in the persecuted church worshiping this day when there's no uh, physical reason they should be praising God that they could say they have probably more joy than any of us because they find a sufficiency of Christ even when everything in the world seems to say there's no reason to praise this God. That's joy. That's joy. Even in the midst of very real tears. Even in the midst of bitter disappointments. 
even in crippling heartbreak. That's the joy that can be found with this gospel, with this Jesus Christ, because we believe that our powerful God is even using those difficult things for our benefit. Amen? And maybe as, as you're hearing these things, you can ask, what are some of the trials I'm going through right now? What is God maybe trying to invite me to see as his way of working my life? And James gives us some more practical uh, extrapolation for you in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we're talking about trials, and a natural question that maybe some of you might even be asking, well, how then do I deal with the testing of my faith? What do I do then? Do I just kind of wait there and like, like the waves are hitting me? Do I just stand in the ocean? Is there something I can do? How in the world do I count trials as joy? And James here talks about wisdom. James talks about wisdom. And, and the wisdom that he speaks of here, it's trying to discern what are the deeper reasons for these trials, Why are some of these things going on? Maybe we can't explain why it's happening, but maybe what is God trying to do through these things? And because I want to be clear, it's not meant to explain away or ignore. Um, I just have a pet peeve when people, Christians, try to explain away suffering. Even with really great theology. I mean, it's better theology than I could probably explain. But I think it's sometimes okay to just say, man, that hurts. And that sucks. (laughs) It's painful. Oof. I, I, I just want to climb in a hole. It's hard. That, that's not our goal here to try to explain things away or ignore. But maybe a way to explain it is we want better perspective. God's trying to grow us in our perspective. So um, our, our youngest, she's beautiful. I mean, she's amazing. And some of you, all you see is when she's beautiful and amazing and cute and winsome and creative and funny. Uh, her mom and I, we see her when she's not like that, particularly when you get her on the piano to try to practice her piano. Oh, man, it, it just kid, it like goes through the exorcist, right? It's, it's just amazing. We're like, did you know her voice could hit those octaves? I mean, we're like, seriously, we're like, okay, that sounds, I mean, we believe in like the devil and stuff. But I mean, that really sounds like, like crazy stuff. And, and it's, it's funny because her mom, if you got to meet her mom, my wife, she is like the best person I know. She's amazing. Um, but she's also strict because she loves her kid. And when she's helping, I'm not really much help because I can be helping with piano and they're playing it. And I'm like, oh, that sounds good because I don't know how to play piano, right? So I'm not really too much help, but their mom does. So she walks them through it and she wants them to do it properly because she's thinking a long-term goal and she wants them to learn not just how to do piano well, but the discipline involved in being part of a practice. It's good. It's healthy. It's good for them. Uh, but man, this kid just does not respond well. And it's amazing where this kid who knows how much her mom loves her will be screaming, you're mean. You're bad. I don't like you. You're a bad person. I'm like, where the heck did that come from? Because she doesn't like some of these things that she would say are trials. <laughs> having to learn these things, having to be disciplined, some of the pain involved. I guess for her, it's pain. And, and, and contrast that with like an hour later, no joke, like an hour later, you feed her some Asian noodles and she's like the happiest kid in the world. Like, mommy, I love you. You're the best. Number one, mommy, I love you so much. I'm like, yo, 
Where was like Demon Piano Kid? Where did that come from? It, 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 it's, it's a little kid's perspective versus a grown-up's. And this is why we're trying to help children to grow up in maturity so that they don't start to have this weird dichotomy between like pure black and white, but that you can do different. You can actually be looking kind of direct and firm and still be fully loving. And kids can't understand that, right? If you, if you, if you give a harsh voice, they think you don't love them. Because a spiritually, in the same way, a spiritually immature person um, will face trials and will say, ah, God doesn't love me anymore. Ah, he's a liar. Preacher's a liar. I hate that preacher. Wow. But just like that kid who would want to play with a knife because it looks fun and cartoons tell him to. Or, or stick the finger in the socket because, I mean, if it looks like it would fit my finger. Or maybe gets mad because they would just want to eat Cheetos and nothing else but for lunch. And parents are trying to actually make them eat these things called vegetables and good, good food. And they get mad thinking, why are you being so mean to me? Um, a mature person faces trials. And, and with wisdom, we start to grow to be able to say, oh, yeah, I used to be so young. And I really didn't understand what God was doing. I thought he was trying to mess with me. I thought that everyone in that church was lying to me. I thought my life was supposed to be fun and happy, joy, joy, perfect now. Oh, but I understand now. Oh, oh, I understand that God actually uses these things in my life. I mean, I don't understand the exact intricacies of why it's happening, but I believe God and his character, that he's good and he can be trusted. And he wants me to grow to be the same person of character and integrity and humility. And he's actually going to use these experiences through these trials because he loves me so much. He loves me too much to just let me do whatever I want. He loves me too much to just kind of be doing whatever I think is right because he wants me to grow to be more like Jesus because he loves me. Or in other words, wisdom is being able to see things from God's perspective in the larger scheme of things. It's trusting that God is a good father who desires good for his children. Um, I think one of the best descriptions is from Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus is describing prayer. And he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And it's, it's, it's a reminder that God is a good God. He's a good father. And I realize for some of us, it's difficult to understand when we say God is a good father because you didn't have good fathers on this earthly realm. So when you hear God is a good father, you're like, oh, okay, I hope not. But God is a good daddy. He cares for us, even when he disciplines us, but he will give us exactly what we need. So when we look at James, when we, when that that passage beginning in verse 5, it tells us that those who are going through trials, trials do not have wisdom. If, if you don't have wisdom, ask God for wisdom freely. And I want to encourage you, make asking for wisdom a regular part of your prayers. We pray for so many other things, and really good stuff too, but often we don't pray for things like wisdom as the, spirits call, uh, as, as the scriptures call us to. Um, ask him freely for wisdom that God would allow you to see through his lens. That God would be able to do like spiritual eye surgery on you. You could start to see with wisdom. Oh, now I get it. 
When I was younger, I didn't really understand. Oh, but God, you're starting to do some corrective um, lens vision on my, I can start to see what you're doing here. So he would give us new eyes on our life and circumstances. And I've been reflecting a lot on my dad in different stories. And once, one thing I was reminded of recently, um, he, he worked blue collar his whole life. I mean, he worked in a factory in America, a factory his whole life, really hard work. Um, I used to feel bad for him, honestly. I mean, I, I would feel bad for him because it was hard. It wasn't very glorious. Um, not, not very much money involved. But I remember uh, one time I shared something to that effect. He said, no, I feel sorry for you and other people. They got like these jobs where you got to use your brain all the time and it's stressful. It's tiring. You got to be so creative and you got to constantly be thinking. I get to, and he, in my career, he went, do you understand what I get to do? I get to work on these factory parts all day and no one cares what I'm thinking. And I can sing to Jesus all day, which he would in his mind. I, that's like a perspective where God starts to give us wisdom instead of, man, this job stinks. I hate what I do. Why am I here? Rather, it's, wow, I'm in a job where I get to just sing all day and no one's going to give me any uh, gripe about that. And it's, it's a seeing the kingdom, seeing the world through the eyes of God, where what we think is harsh, what we think is trial, what we think is bad, is actually God's gift at times to train us, to nurture us, to form us. Because spiritual maturity is growing to see things from God's perspective because we are actively praying, praying for the wisdom to understand. And this wisdom, it allows us to see life from a radically different perspective. Um, even when it comes to the example we're given here in verses 9 to 11, talking about material wealth. Uh, verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Wisdom, it's recognizing that everything's God's. God is the giver of things. He also takes away. So James is essentially asking here, what reason is there to boast in the way that you have about your material wealth as if you're the reason you're rich? That's, that's ridiculous. Like you're all boasting and exalting. And he's saying, you got it all mixed up. It'd be like if Bill Gates' son was walking here. Yeah, I'm rich. Yeah, I look, look how rich I look. What? You're like, dude, it's because your pops is rich. You didn't earn that. You didn't do any of that. You didn't, uh, you didn't build that. Right, go to your pop. You didn't do that. That's your dad. It'd be silly if he's boasting and looking down on us because of those things. So remember who James is writing to again. He's writing to those who are dispersed. He's writing to those who are struggling. So in some sense, this is a word of warning to those who might trust in their wealth. Maybe they have means. He's giving a word there. I think that's appropriate. But it's just as much a word to those who are lacking in material wealth, which most immigrants would be. It's a word to those who maybe are struggling financially. Maybe they're tempted to compare with the person who does seem to have a lot of things and say, man, they seem happy. They've got it all together. And, and James is trying to remind us here, again, again, you need wisdom to look at it from God's perspective. Because just because you have a lot on this earth doesn't mean that necessarily you're in favor with God. Because wisdom provides us to perspective to see a more accurate picture of reality that the person who is materially lacking 
may actually be the richest person because they have the favor of the God of this universe. Because that doesn't mean, make any sense in our world, right? Even as Christians, we love to worship get big. We love to worship uh, big and, and great and extravagant. We love those things, but God is continually trying to remind us, hey, you put your hope in all the wrong things. That's not what's important. That's not what's favor of God. Because you could have absolutely nothing and be in a much better place. One more verse for today. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And James here, he's talking about the reward for those who complete the race. And the crown, described as crown here, it's not so much this like jewel-encrusted headwear, but it's more a picture of a laurel wreath that someone who comes in finishing the race or an athletic contest, like they would get that laurel wreath placed around their neck, or maybe the, a victorious emperor who's conquered would come home and receive this laurel wreath around the neck and say, well done, good job, you've done, you've won, you've done what you're supposed to be doing. And we're talking about maturity, right? Maturity, again, it's, it's the wisdom to see a more accurate picture of reality. Because we've got to recognize what James here is talking about. He's not just talking about going through a trial. And we've got to get out of a kind of our Western, like, 24-7, Amazon, next day, same day delivery mentality. Okay, well, I'll go through a trial six hours later. Woohoo! Mature Christian! I mean, that's, man, that might be part of it. But what he's also talking about here is that, yeah, trials will produce steadfastness and perseverance, and here's your ultimate reward. So, yes, he's talking about here and now, and that's real, but he's also talking way longer for eternity. He's not just talking about what we will benefit now. He's also talking about what those trials are going to produce in perseverance and steadfastness for you. And here's your great reward. Here's your great crown. And again, I, you know, I apologize. For those of you who follow me on social media, you're probably sick of hearing me talk about my dad because I've been posting so many different stories. And you probably just unfollow. But um, one, one more little one here. Uh, he, again, by the time he ended his life, he was not a very, um, I guess, well-known person in this world's economy. I mean, he, again, he worked a very menial, blue-collar job. Um, didn't have too much. You know, wasn't, wasn't that prominent in our culture. The one thing he did have, and some of you saw these pictures, he was a beast physically, but by the end, he didn't even have that. You know, the cancer wasted him away to almost nothing. So he didn't even have that. And I guess there's a part of me that could, that could be tempted to say, man, he ended so poorly. There was really nothing. But I'm reminded here, this is talking about eternal life. And the hope is, yet, yeah, even though his body was wasted away, even though he had nothing that looked impressive, in a culture where we worship big, we worship rich, we think that those who have all the toys, they're the most to be envied. We look in this kind of economy, the scriptures remind us that the gospel is, those who have absolutely nothing might be the richest people involved. And I just picture my dad with nothing. Nothing in this world, but he was entering into eternal rest with that wreath that was coming around his neck. And the Heavenly Father said, good job. You did it. You were faithful. You lived hard. It was hard, but you persevered. You were steadfast. There was a lot of trials, but you did it. And you're leaving a legacy. And now come home, rest, get that crown, get that wreath, and welcome home and receive your true reward that you never got while you were there. Because this is talking about eternal life. 
I know, I, I know our generation, we don't like to talk about things like eternal life because we're like, well, no, let's be people who are really on the ground here, making a difference. And that's true. We need to be. But we can't lose sight of the fact that the gospel is also about a life beyond just even the one we live in this flesh right here on this side of glory. Because in this world, and, and I want you to hear this clearly, especially if maybe some of you need to be convicted in this, you can absolutely look like you're winning in this world. You can have all the toys. You can be richer than anyone. You can be, have powerful positions. You can have friends in high places. You can have all of the best cars in the world. You can have all the best gadgets. You can have high prominence. Everyone knows you. You can look like you're winning. And you can actually be on the path to eternal losing. Because this is all you get. This is it. And then after that point, you got to meet God. And if you don't know him, I would suggest that's the worst place to be in apart from his presence. But the converse of that is, in this side of glory, in this flesh, in this world, you can look every, every bit the part of a loser that anyone else would describe. You could go day to day, not have 10 cents in your bank account. You can be looking job to job. Maybe you have a job, but it's the kind everyone kind of makes jokes about. Maybe you don't look that pretty or you don't have much to like brag about physically. Maybe you don't have that many things that people would consider impressive. But in that economy, when you look like you're losing in this world's eyes, you could actually be on the right path to eternal glory because you have God. You can have nothing, but if you have God, you're in a much better place than someone who seems to have everything but does not have God. And we need to take that seriously because we put too much hope into things that this world says is valuable and that this world says is important and this world tells us to chase with every ounce of our energy when God promised us the eternal crown of being welcomed home even if it doesn't look like it here that we are with God for eternity. Because it's not just about life on this side of glory. And it shouldn't surprise us because that's the way of our Savior. It's the way of our Savior, Jesus Christ, especially at near the end of his life. I mean, it was his whole life, but particularly near the end when we think about this thing called a cross. Because this thing called a cross, it looked like the ultimate loser's deal. Yeah, oh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, King of the Jews. Oh, yeah, you know, I had all these people following you and all this miracles and healing and bread and fish and people were scared of you. But look at you now, hanging on this piece of wood. Seriously? That's the king of the Jews. That's the king of kings, Lord of lords, hanging on this tree in your underwear, bleeding out, looking like a fool, looking like a mess. Everyone laughing at you, mocking you, dividing your clothes, spearing you through. That's, that's the winning. Oh man, you are such a loser. Big L loser. Wow. You didn't do anything in this world, Jesus. It looked a little okay for a while, but man, you had really ended bad. And then obviously we have the hindsight of history to know that, oh, that, that was actually the way to victory. He died, gave up his life. He did hang on a tree. He did bleed out. He did do all those things. But that was actually the way that power would be known. That was the way God would reveal his strength. And the enemies didn't know that a few days later, it was all being prepared for this thing called the resurrection, where Jesus would rise from the grave and say, y'all better recognize this is victory. This is hope. This is life. It looked like a loser's deal, but it was actually the winner. Because the economy of God doesn't always seem to make sense at the time. On that Friday, it didn't make sense to anyone. But by Sunday, you recognize, oh, I see. I see. 
And God is trying to teach us in small ways in our life as well. Don't just go by what you see right now, even in the hardest trials, but to recognize God is doing something big. Trust him. Follow him. Let's stand together. And let me ask you to bow your head with me, and we're going to go into some time to respond and singing and in the Lord's Supper and praying. Let me just, uh, just you know, straightforwardly ask you right now, where do you stand with God? You know, and I'm not, we're, our goal is not to say having things is bad or doing good things is bad. And I think anything that we do for God's glory is a, is a beautiful thing. But have you put your hope in these things? Have you put your hope in things of this world at the detriment of knowing eternal glory with the king of this universe? And if you don't know Jesus in that way, can I invite you to lay down everything at this time and just say, Jesus, forgive me that I've trusted in things to make me whole when only you can do that. And maybe for some of you, I, again, I can only say this with a straight face, knowing the goodness of God. Maybe some of you are here in this place today because your life is crumbling. Maybe some of you are here because everything is going into the toilet. Your sanity your marriage, your job, your finances, your health. And if you are a Christian, can I suggest you, and again, humbly, knowing the heart of God, maybe God is even using those things to remind you again, you need me, you need me. So don't just view those hard things that are happening as God's um, being your enemy. Maybe it's because he loves you so much and let those things guide you to him. Come to this table if you're a Christian. Take a piece of the wafer. Dip it in the cup. Be reminded of the broken body, blood of Christ that cleanses us, frees us from our sins, and be reminded again of his power in things that look ridiculous to this world's economy, but it's glorious in God's economy. And trust that again. If you're not a Christian, I, I just want to say, follow this Jesus, because it might not make sense and we might not even have all the answers, but in our brokenness, we will know we're not alone. Our trials are not just our fault, not just something we have to live with. God's actually going to use it in your life. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, help us. Heavenly Father, remind us of your great love. I pray particularly for those who are in this room and they are struggling through trials. I pray that they will not be distracted by the trials and just getting angry, but rather you're using that, Lord, to humble their heart and to be able to grow up in maturity and be able to see that you love them so much. You are even going to use these things. And Lord, we're not, we're, some of us, we're just not smart enough to be able to understand exactly why everything is happening. But one thing we can say is we know you are good and you are in control and we trust you. And I pray for all of us that we would just lay down our lives before you. And we want to be wise. We want to be mature. We want to see world as we should. So help us step by step to do that as we trust in this Jesus. Pray, sing, receive communion. You can come up as, as you're led and let's continue to seek the Lord together.